Let's ask the Lord's blessing on this time. Father, I thank you for your goodness, your mercy, for your grace. Awesome to think about the fact that you meet us here. Pray that you'd be speaking to us this morning in spite of the very strict limitations of the speaker and that you would enable your word to be clear and that you would work in our hearts to glorify and honor your name. We are a needy people. We've been talking this morning about your sovereignty and oversight and it always, always humbles my heart, my mind to realize that there is absolutely no reason whatsoever why you would care for me and choose me. It isn't that you saw something in me that I didn't see. The thing that's there is sin and rebellion and that whatever good comes out of my life or our lives <clears throat> is a result of your working in us to transform us and to make us into instruments to which you can bring glory to your name. I pray that you'll do that this morning. I pray that your hand would be free to work, your strength would be demonstrated in our lives and that you would be honored. You would be honored and exalted and glorified today. We commit this time to you and I ask you to work in my heart, in our hearts, for your glory. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 2, and I'm going to be doing a little bit of review as you, I think we mentioned the error he asked and what we're looking at this morning because I've given, i sent some stuff to send in. There's a long text of scripture, but I want to just be, do a brief review again with this, just kind of reading through it for the simple reason that it's a it's one of those sentences by Paul <clears throat> that uh, kind of we can get lost, at least I can get lost in it, hard to find. And I want I want to be able to read it through so that we can understand it. So I'm going to try to labor over this. And so let's just begin in verse one, and I'm just going to read one verse at a time and then make some comments on it. Verse one, Paul writing. Remember now, he says here in the text that he's in prison, but it doesn't say it in the text, but we know from, the, from these, this is a prison epistle he's written from Rome, and he's writing to the believers at Colossae, and it says here, I want you to understand how great a struggle I have on your behalf. That struggle that he's talking about is probably a struggle of stress and pressure, and your, his heart is really in this. And so when you, when you have something that you care for, so much there is Paul mentioned in one of his letters about concern for all the churches when you have this kind of passion this kind of heart it puts a stress on you and there's a burden and he says I just want you to understand what a great struggle I have on your behalf and for those at Laodicea and for all of those who have not seen my face in the flesh he's writing to several groups of believers that he's not traveled to see them, he's not been there, he's concerned for them, and so he he's, has this burden, and he wants to 
uh, them to know that he's writing out of a real burden uh, and a real concern. I wonder why that would matter to the Colossians. I mean, how would that encourage them to hear from the great apostle Paul writing them to them all the way from about 1300 miles away to the prison in Rome, Paul having uh, been aware of some of the things that are going on through his friend Epaphras, who has come there to tell him about these things, and Paul is writing back. Why would that encourage and challenge the believers there at Colossae? Well, I think it, one, among the things, it would, they would be aware of the seriousness of the issues and of the, the passion of the heart. You know, your passion shows. It really does. It's something that really burdens your heart, really burdens your heart, is obvious. And that that uh, pressure, that passion can speak. And um, open up people's understanding of issues so that they can see the real value of something because, wow, boy, these, that's a sensitive issue. Yeah. And it's an important issue. And it was an important issue on Paul's heart. So he's writing them to do that, to encourage them. And that's what he says in verse 2. We see his burden in verse 1. We see kind of his motive in verse 2. He says, so that their hearts will be encouraged. The, uh, I was reading in, in my Bible through, uh, reading it, trying to, trying, I'm about three days behind now, but trying to get through it in a year. And the, the passion, the part that I've been reading, uh, about a week ago was the children of Israel in their wanderings have been brought up to the edge of the promised land and they have sent out spies, 12 spies into the land to investigate the land to see the, the instruction was that uh, the Lord wants you to see the land, he's going to give you what it's like, what kind of fruit there is and so on and so forth. So they go investigate the land and come back and uh, Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, bring a glowing report that is a beautiful land, it's got all stuff in it, that we like the just abundant fruit and stuff, and, and we can take it, let's go get it. But ten of them said, we saw these sons of these giants, these they're they are fierce. We can't handle them, they're too severe. We're gonna go over there and we're gonna get ourselves kicked real badly and eaten alive, and we can't do it. And they discouraged the people. And so that eventually you got this massive, massive group of people that have been wandering around in the wilderness a bit. They've come up to the very edge of the promised land. They've sent out their spies. The spies looked around 40 days. They came back and gave a bad report. And so finally the Lord says, okay, he closes the book. He says, you're going to stay in the wilderness and you're going to wander in the wilderness. And for every day, that you wandered, that you were spied out the land, I'm going to give you a year of wandering in the wilderness. So they had 40 years more of wandering in the wilderness because they were discouraged. They allowed these people to discourage them. Discouragement, I don't know if you've ever really been discouraged. I've seen people discouraged, and I've seen it's a hard thing. And sometimes discouragement can really just make us quit. I mean, there's no, it's not physically. There's no physical problem. It's just that discouragement can make us just turn aside and just just roll in the throw in the towel and say, "I don't want to do it anymore," and quit like that. Discouragement's a real enemy. Paul says, "I want these people to know my heart, and I want them to be encouraged." Uh, he says that they've been 
uh, knit together, united together in love. That is the way of saying that these people are, are united together in the family of God in the salvation that he has provided. They are, are his people, his family, tied together in love. And I want them to be encouraged to know that I am burdened for them. I am concerned for them. I'm writing them and I'm pursuing them. And that's a very, very uh, real part of my passion. And then he goes on uh, in the next verse <clears throat> to talk about even unto all the wealth. And this is this is uh, um, one of those passages that, that takes a little bit of reading. I want you to notice here when he talks about all the wealth of the full assurance uh, of understanding unto the full knowledge of God's mystery. He's using a word there, the word full, which kind of needs a little bit of explanation. Uh, there are several passages in the scripture. Verse uh, 9 talks about um, in Christ is the fullness of deity in bodily form and talks about in Christ you have been filled, who is the head of all rule and all authority. We talk about being full. I know that uh, they we're told to be filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit. That word full of being filled uh, is just a way of saying that we we are God is adequately controlling us and adequately in us, and we are we have a healthy grasp, if you will, of some of the things that He wants to do and wants to do in our lives. And so, as we come into this verse here, um, He said he, he talks about even unto the wealth. I like the the idea of resulting this this. Uh, this pressure, if you will, that is on the, the children of Israel, that is on uh, Paul, that gives him this struggle, this struggle that he is, is struggling with, that he wants the children, the, the uh, people in Corinth to know about and to be encouraged about. This struggle that is on there is on his heart. He wants it to become an assurance. And that's what he's saying here. He says, even resulting in all in the wealth of the full assurance of understanding. What is assurance? It's like a confirmation, isn't it? It's like an encouragement, a confirmation. Uh, and that's what he's using it here. He's saying that I want you to have this assurance, this confidence. Again, discouragement can make us turn aside and lose our confidence. And so he's in that vein. He's saying, I want you to have this assurance and he calls it there in the text, I don't want to get sidetracked, but he calls it the wealth of assurance, which means that this is a valuable resource. This is a valuable supply. Uh, it is a treasure of assurance. The, the assurance is a, is a treasure, the confidence that we have. And he uses the phrase understanding, which talks about an intelligent understanding. So he wants them to have a, a good understanding of what's going on in their lives. He wants them to be filled with the knowledge of their assurance and the knowledge of what Paul is doing and in, in, uh, in his concern that he has for them. And he wants that to encourage them and to challenge their hearts. And so it's an interesting, to me, it's an interesting thought that um, He's writing to them about this assurance and this, this understanding, and it opens up to them the idea of a full or intimate knowledge. That's what he says, understanding unto the full or intimate 
knowledge of God. Here's that word full again. And the, the knowledge, you know, we, we, what we know about the Lord is really important. It helps us. We don't want to be in the dark when we're going through difficult times. We don't want to be, we don't want God's purpose to be shrouded so that we have no idea what is going on and we feel like we are, we are victims without any answers or without any direction. And so he's, he says here, he talks about this full assurance, having this full assurance of understanding unto the full knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures. The word treasures there is the word you can translate storehouse. In him are hidden all the storehouse, that the uh, warehouse uh, supply of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom being the ability to handle life, knowledge being understanding what, who God is and what he's doing. And, and so here is this passage here that Paul is saying, I want you to have this assurance. I want you to gain this assurance and understanding that leads you to a full understanding, a full knowledge of who God is, what he's doing, and who you are, and your needs, and so on and so forth. You know, when, when hard things come our way, and they do, and they will, uh, I think of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, when he, when he was faced face to face with God's majesty and God's holiness, the thing that he saw most was himself. And when the Lord sends trials to our lives like this a lot of times, one of the things that he's showing us is not just what others are doing, but ourselves and what's in us and what needs to be done in us. And he's good. I, I have, I, you probably have heard me talking about over these last two or three years, a lot of the struggles and the things that I've been going through and saying, I want to be fruitful. I want to, uh, in the parable of the sower, I see myself more clearly as a, as a soil that has weeds, weed-infected soil, than the soil that is fruitful, because I can see there are distractions in my life and things that, that enter in my life, and I don't want those distractions. And so I pray, and I pray quite a bit that the Lord would help me not only love Him and want to glorify Him, but want to love Him and want to glorify Him, you see, and want to honor Him. And so these, these distractions are there. And so when we go through difficulties and trials like I have, struggles, they help us to see ourselves and really to be able to, to get a, a better grasp of who we are and, and who we're not. Sometimes we think we're more, a lot more, especially if you're in a position of leadership, leadership like I am, you kind of begin to get the big head and uh, you, 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 God's not a very good friend of that kind of idea. And so um, here is his saying here that these trials come to reveal the greatness of God, to give us this full knowledge of understanding this mystery, which is Christ himself. Notice this verse three. three. Um, he says, in whom were hidden all the treasures or storehouse of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge you could put down as inquiry too. Uh, that knowledge that comes by inquiry and research. Just the way it's worded here, in Christ are hidden which means that this is an area in which there are not things that are in open display. It's not like that God, I remember in Germany, in Europe, they used to like to in the small town, every single small town had the same thing, they had a bakery with all kinds of cakes and uh, rolls and buns and things like that. And they always put those things in the window as you were walking down the street, you could see those things. And I'm telling you what, they were really, 
really good. And it's like going to the fresh market at Christmas. You see all those things out there on, on the on display. The greatness of Christ, the majesty and the glory of Christ, he's saying here, these things, he hasn't put them just out there on the surface where you can't help but see them. But a lot of these, in fact, probably the majority of the great things are hidden. You have to dig, you have to search, you have to study. But it is so worth it. It is so worth it. And it, it uh, bears fruit in your life. And you begin to study and to research and to investigate these things. And so that's what this. Um, we're so busy and we're so tied up. <clears throat> what Pete was talking about this morning about uh, reading from the bulletins, that was, uh, that's, uh, I think it's a very good idea, or even having a prayer time. And, and a lot of times, the, some of the churches, some of the reformed churches, will have a, a responsive confessional reading where you confess and you, you say, We've done this, we've sinned this, with our thoughts of life, and you'll go through that and read that. And it is a serious time, and it, it says things that are true. We are, we need to confess. And it should be a time of serious reflection. And uh, the verse that comes to mind as I was writing this, I wrote down in my, uh, my notes here, um, when we talk about having a full knowledge of God, is to know him and know his best, to be still, and know that I'm God. And, you know, I guess maybe part of it is old age, but more and more I find that that I really, when I watch things on TV or I listen to a lot of stuff, it distracts my mind and my heart and becomes a pollution in my life, and I don't want that. I don't want that. And so it's, it's um, yeah, yeah, and I appreciate your patience with me sometimes because I'll talk about something I've seen or whatever. But we, I think we should be careful about the affections. Guard, the Bible says, guard the affections of your heart. It goes out of the issues of life. And so I think it's a wise thing to do that. Be careful about that. And so he goes on to say, he's, he's uh, after giving him this conclusion that he wants them to have a full knowledge and full assurance uh, to kind of give them some parameters in their walk, um, and to, to focus on Christ and the things in whom are hidden, the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge, he goes on giving them a warning, saying, I say this so that no one will delude, mislead, mislead you with persuasive arguments. That's why he's saying this, because the children, the, there was the possibility of them being deluded or detoured with some of the things that were beginning to grow in the area of Gnosticism and stuff. There were some arguments that were arguing, trying to to give them some strange thoughts about the person of Christ, about his humanity, about uh, God, and then emanations down to being Jesus, and so on and so forth, and some of these things. And Paul says, I'm just, I don't want you to be deluded. That word could be misled. I mean, that word could, could translate mislead. I don't want you to be misled or led astray or deceived. Um, and he uses the word persuasive arguments or, or persuasive words. That's really a Greek, one Greek word that is made up of a compound. One word means to persuade, the other means words, and so words to persuade or, or to deceive. <clears throat> and so he's, he's saying, I don't want you to be deceived. I like this too, by the way. This is interesting. And as I was looking at that, several commentators said, um, I say this so that no one will persuade you with probable arguments. Now, probable argument 
uh, is an argument that possibly could be is believable, even maybe uh, if you try to work at it logically, seemingly a likely argument. Um, an argument that you might look at and you might be able to, to get some kinds of, yeah, that's, that's an interesting argument. There's got something to that maybe. And he says, I don't want you to be deceived with probable arguments that are not true. Stay away from them. Stick to the truth. Stick to what you know. Um, <clears throat> I do not know what went on last night, but the, uh, the guy, the testimony that was in heaven for 90 minutes or whatever like that, <clears throat> and I have no idea what he said. I didn't go because I had to study. But I'm always very skeptical of people who give a testimony of what after death experience. Very skeptical of it. Uh, and I, I don't recommend anybody going to it because we have the truth here. If you want to know what God says, don't close your eyes and meditate and try to think about it. Read the scriptures. Read what God says. This is where he speaks. This is his word, black and white in the text. And, and, that's right. And so it's, it's important to stick to the book. And uh, so don't be deluded with plausible arguments. Uh, Paul, he goes on to say, Paul goes on to say, even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit. Here again, there's a reminder from Paul. He's writing to these people. He's burdened for them. He is separated from them. He's never seen them before. And yet his heart is there. He says, even though I'm not there, I'm not, I'm, I'm not on top of this, yet I am there in spirit. I am concerned. My heart is being poured out. I'd like to have a heart like that. I've asked the Lord to burden my heart, to help me to be uh, really, to burn out for him, um, joyfully, willingly, rather than just burn up and you know be worn away with doing something that's not worth bothering with. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's really important. And the thing is that while you say, well, then do it, it's not easy just to do it in the flesh. The Lord has to work in your heart. He has to be repentance and having his developing, having our hearts become softened and sensitive is, the, is his work. And he works in us to do that. He makes us sensitive to that. And so um, I've been appreciating since we were looking at John 10, the Lord as a shepherd, I've been appreciating his work as a shepherd. There's a lot of work that he needs to do in my life, and there's a lot of work he needs to do in your life. And so we ask him to do that. We ask him to have a free reign in our hearts and in our lives. Then he goes on um, <clears throat> in verse 6. He says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. That idea of receiving uh, has the idea of receiving by instruction, um, and walk in the same manner as you receive them uh, by instruction in the same manner, appropriate him for yourself. Uh, walk in him, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and built up in him and having been established in your faith. The idea of being established is confirmed or approved uh, or to remove doubt. And so uh, here we again, he's trying to encourage the people. He says, as you have received Christ Jesus is going, knowing that they have come to him, this master, this Lord, as you received him as the sovereign of your life. So step by step, walk in him. Let him be the master of your life. You know, um, that was a big struggle. And still is, I guess, among a lot of evangelical churches over the lordship of Jesus Christ and that relationship to salvation. That was one that was big to me at one time. 
because I had, I had been sort of persuaded that you could accept Jesus as Savior and then later on come and embrace him as Lord. That's foreign to the gospel. And I'm very indebted to some of the people at Grace Church, John and others, for helping me to see that, that error, because that is a, that is a serious error. Um, in the scriptures, over and over again, the name Jesus is the name that refers to our Lord in his humanity. It's the name that was given to him in his incarnation. He shall call his name Jesus. And uh, he, but he's, the second person of the Trinity was not always in flesh. He was born there as a virgin in Bethlehem, and he's now in the flesh now. But uh, he was, he is, um, I said was, he is God and he is the Lord and he is, he's worthy of, of our honor and our praise. And as a human man, we call him Jesus, but in the, uh, the, the disciples and the people in the New Testament always refer to him as Lord. For example, you have a passage like uh, Peter uh, said to Jesus, Lord, this should not happen. We should not do this or whatever. He always does that. In John 20, Mary Magdalene, she came to the tomb uh, after the, the crucifixion when Jesus was supposed to be buried. And she came and she ran to Simon Peter after that. And she and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and she said, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they laid. She referred to him as Lord. She didn't say they've taken Jesus out. They said that she's that they've taken the Lord out. The same is true in Acts 4. And I, I got, I'm not going to read a lot of them. But to the congregation, um, in the new congregation in Jerusalem, the Lord was talking. He says that with great power, the apostles were bearing witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them. They were bearing witness to the Lord Jesus. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost said that um, in Acts 2.36, that the house of Israel, watch this, that the house of Israel, I like that by the way, the house of Israel, the nation of Israel, let the nation of Israel or let the house of Israel know for sure, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, who this Jesus whom you've crucified, there is the name Jesus referring to his humanity. This Jesus, this man Jesus, who's from Nazareth, who was born a virgin, this man Jesus, you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. He's been exalted. And so listen, he's, he's saying here that we follow him we, in the same way that you receive Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Walk under his, he is the Lord. Whether you like it or not, he is the Lord. Whether you accept it or not, he is the Lord. And he is the eternal sovereign. And we bow before him and we worship him and we submit to him. And uh, that's, that's a privilege that we have. And then uh, further on in the text, uh, he says, abounding with thanksgiving. This is, this is uh, the last, there were four participles in this text, the end of this text. And the text, they are just to, to reiterate them. One is to be rooted in Christ. The second one is to be built up in him. The third is to be established in their faith. And if those things are there, then he says, and then we will overflow with gratitude to God. That overflowing of, of joy or gratitude, I personally think that it, you can't stop it. I think if you're, if you really are doing these things, if you're rooted and in Christ, if he is rooted is a, and we didn't get into the detail we did last time, but rooted is something everybody understands. If a plant is growing in the ground and it's rooted, you know the root system, you know how important it is, you know how it gives it the plant stability and nourishment. And stuff. And so if you're rooted in Christ, 
and you're built up like a building so that you're pulled together and you're honored in, in him and you are established in the faith, confirmed in the faith, then you will have that joy. You will overflow. This is what he says. You will overflow with gratitude. It makes me think of David in the 23rd Psalm when he says, my cup my cup uh, I am I am so blessed and so happy and so fortunate to have the Savior as my <clears throat> shepherd. And so he says there. Now let's get into the, we're coming into the, the new text. That was all review. And I only have a few minutes. I'm not trying to use it all the time, but I'm trying to get through the text and kind of make it a little bit smoother. Um in, in verse eight. He just gives us a warning. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of man, according to the <coughs> elemental principles of the world, and not according to Christ. What he's saying is don't be deceived, don't be led astray, be, be careful with him, uh, with what you know and what you're doing. He is God. We don't want to play with him. We don't want to, to take him lightly. Um, verse 9, uh, the, the text that previewed that that closes our last, the text last week, it says, for in him, here is again this the phrase to fullness, in him all the fullness, that's, that's literally what it means, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and all authority. I want you to notice here, I think it's important, these things that are applicable are applicable when we are in him in our relationship with him he is the sovereign over us he is the boss he sets the issues he is the one that leads us we follow him in verse 11 uh, this is new new text now this is what we're going there are three things in this passage here in the, in the bulletin and i didn't call attention to it probably i should have <clears throat> these three things are lined up in the bulletin. First has to do with salvation. Second one has to do with forgiveness. And third has to do with victory. And this first one, the salvation, is verses 11 through 12. In whom you also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. We talked about that this morning. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised up with him through faith. In the working of God who raised him from the dead. First section, we're not going to go beyond that. First section is two things he mentions. He mentions circumcision and he mentions baptism. Circumcision, the physical circumcision, removal of the flesh, the spiritual circumcision, which is the circumcision of the heart, is that circumcision which cuts, which says that we have been, we've had the sin nature cut, we've had the sin nature killed. And the same thing with baptism. There is a spirit that's a physical baptism, but the spiritual baptism is when we're united with Christ and we're buried with him in baptism, buried with him in the likeness of his death and raised with him uh, in his likeness of his resurrection. So let's look at that just for a moment. I only have about three or four minutes. <clears throat> Paul gives us, and, and there are basically two views dealing with this circumcision. Let's talk about that in a second. And the idea of circumcision Circumcision, some have felt like that circumcision alone could really save uh, the person who was, who was circumcised. And that was particularly 
popular among a lot of the Jews. Uh, they were granted membership into the covenant community of Israel. You were circumcised, you were brought into the community, you became an official uh, a son of Abraham, which was a privilege. And uh, it was a strong, uh, it, was a, it was a view among many, but it was, it's wrong. The Bible doesn't teach that. Paul says, they are not all Israel who were descended from Israel. And in Romans, um, and, and that goes to Romans 9, 6, membership in the covenant community did not guarantee salvation. Uh, Paul says in Romans 2, 25, when indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. For he is not a Jew who is not who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is of the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit and not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Deuteronomy 10, 6 says, circumcise your heart and stiff and stiffen your neck no longer, which is a way of just saying that your heart needs to be softened. Uh, circumcise your heart. It's a, it's a heart issue. And so it's, it's important. Um, the second view is that circumcision does not save. Um, circumcision is only an outward demonstration of the fact that man is both sinful and needed cleansing. I was reading up uh, from John's commentary. John says um, the cutting away of the male foreskin on the reproductive organ was a graphic way to demonstrate that man needed cleansing at his deepest level of being. That part of the male anatomy which produces life also produces sin. And you pro procreate one uh, generation of sinners after another. It's passed on. And so it's a way of, of symbolically illustrating the desperate need for cleansing of sin to to um, kill the the or, or interrupt that procreation process, if you will. And I, that doesn't mean that you can do it for each generation. It's every single person. For Christian, um, the physical right of circumcision is unnecessary since we have already been circumcised. And this is a quote from his text. We've already been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. The object of the re removal of the body of the flesh. The body of the flesh refers to that sinful fallen human nature totally dominated by believers before salvation. Believers have a new nature that has been cleansed of sin, sin's dominance, and given a new, uh, a new, a new nature created in righteousness having been circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands. And that's what Paul talks about that in Romans, talks about the circumcision not made with hands. In our salvation, uh, the old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away so that we no longer are slaves to sin. So that now, if anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he is a new creature, old things passed away, Behold, all things have become new. And so Paul relates this struggle, um, this new position of the heart, this disposition of the heart. Paul talks about the struggle he had in Romans 7, where he says the things he wants to do, he doesn't do. And he's not, he's not happy uh, with the bent of his heart. Part of his, he's got this changed heart, this desire to please God, the heart that wants to submit to God, but it is encased in a flesh that is in rebellion, that wants to live for itself. He has that struggle inside. So do you. If you know the Lord, you do. If you don't know the Lord, then there is no struggle. 
He just walked in the flesh. But if you know the Lord, he gives you a new heart and you want to please him, you want to obey him, and you find there is this tension. There was in my life, and still is sometimes. There's this tension that goes on. You understand what I'm saying? It's a battle, so it's important. So what, what Paul is saying here is that there is a struggle of warfare that is going on. And in the context, he also uses the illustration of baptism. <clears throat> Talks about baptism here as another metaphor to illustrate this spiritual reality. Baptism pictures our union with Christ. Believers have been buried with him in baptism. The spiritual union of the believer with Christ that takes place in salvation. And water baptism is a picture of that, buried with him in, in, in death and raised with him in newness of life. And so both baptism and circumcision, um, it's not the physical circumcision that it saves in the physical baptism, but it's the, the illustration of the spiritual aspect of that. Water baptism symbolizes the believer's identification with Christ's death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit, so that we are united by that one spirit. Spiritual transformation is pictured uh, and is achieved only through faith in the working of God. The working, the word working there, the word is the word energy, speaking of God's active ability. And so our salvation is not just through some physical act or some physical baptism, but through the working of the Spirit of God in faith in our hearts and in our lives. And so this is illustrated here in this passage there, the first passage, we're going to get to forgiveness next time. But the first one has to do with salvation illustrated by the circumcision and the baptism. And uh, it is a, it's a heavy, it's, it, I spent a lot of time in there trying to, to grapple with these things because it's important to know what Paul is saying. It's important to see his heart and his passion and his love for the people. I am jealous of that. I would like to, to have that same, that same passion that really just consumes, you know what I'm saying? Consumes my heart. And uh, it's easy for me to be uh, detoured, it's easy to be sidetracked, it's easy to be led astray, and I don't want to do that. So, and I know you don't either. <clears throat> let's let's uh, close down. We're out of time. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Father, thank you. Uh, we've been looking at these names, kind of run through them. I don't know that, that, um, that I've done a good job of explaining this, but this is really, really important. I really thank you for your patience with us. For your mercy and your grace, we've been looking at your election and your sovereign choice, and we are impressed with the greatness of your call. We have nothing to contribute that makes us worthy of that, but you are so good to us, and I thank you for that. I thank you for your care. I thank you for your love, and I thank you for the word, and I pray you'll help us understand more and more. To have that, we're talking about the assurance that uh, at the beginning and to have that assurance and to, to see the to have that kind of heart that Paul had in concerns of the people and writing them and being burdened for them, even though he's not physically there, he's there in spirit. And we ask your blessing upon uh, this day, this week. Pray also for the study tonight. Thank you for Larry and for Debbie and for letting us use their place. Thanks for these people coming. And I pray that you'll help us 
the Lord this week to really to be still and to know what you're like to have our hearts bathed in the full knowledge of our Lord and to be able to plummet into the depths of the mysteries of Christ that are mind as it were uh, from the scriptures about the greatness of you that's what you said in there that, that these are these things are things that fill up the person and so you're full of, of, of the, the greatness and the majesty and the glory of almighty God help us to appreciate that to investigate you and to follow you and to love you and we pray in Jesus name with thanksgiving amen <laughs>